And did you know that I can trace my family lineage back to the Bayeux Tapestry? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Duke de Laurence came over with them uh, with them feisty Norman types. That's pretty far back. Um, it's not quite as far back as Roman times, of course. Great Emperor uh, Culo. Emperor Culo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know that that, that that's pretty far back, but mm. um, it is mm. actually you know the the Normans were of course descended from the Vikings. Norman meaning North man, um, and actually I think you know probably have to delve a bit deeper into Ancestry.com but um, I could probably trace my lineage back to Thor 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 yeah he's good but Thor is, is he's a demigod isn't he technically I suppose by by definition all of the Norse gods were sort of demigods in that they could be killed yeah so. yeah but of course Jupiter himself could not be killed Jupiter's a planet Ant I'm talking the Roman god which was a planet. I'm talking, I'm descended from Jupiter, the planet. This episode of Tales from the Pig Shed is brought to you by Lord Tenderbody's Pork Medallion Collection, now on display at Proud Rose House, newly polished, and includes examples won by great-grandfather Tenderbody at the Battle of Upwipe. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Tales from the Pigshed. Our stories are of the very best pedigree. Descended from rosette winners of the Great Norfolk Story Fair of 1809. I'm here today with a man who is the very antithesis of cool, my good friend, Ant Kuhl. Um, Tim, hmm? you do know uh, antithesis means the opposite of or, or negator of something. Yeah. Ah. Okay then. This is a podcast about Norwich. We're here to bring you two stories inspired by one of the historical blue plaques. One from Ant. And one that has just popped in between the morning's quail shoot and an afternoon of grouse beating. They're really not that keen on birds, are they? The upper classes. Uh, well, at least one was. Today's plaque looks at celebrated falconer and all-round bird brain. From impeccable family lines. Impeccable. It's the third Earl of Orford and grandson of Britain's first Prime Minister, Lord George Walpole. 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 Lord, Lord Georgie. Lord Georgie was a member of the English aristocracy and a peer in the latter half of the 18th century. He is remembered mostly for being a bit of a twit and squandering his inheritance but he also was remarkably popular with the lower classes. The hoi polloi of Norfolk. For his unprecedented generosity and eccentric behaviour. His exuberant lifestyle led to his trailing an entourage of, as one observer described, a rather seedy collection of racing men, half-pay officers, parsons and attorneys. What on earth is a half-pay officer? I think it's... Um, like a soldier on a zero-hours contract. One way old Georgie managed to squander a sizable portion of his estate was in gambling. Georgie couldn't resist a wager, and it seems the sillier the better. Would you tell us of one such wager, if you please, Ant? Very well. 
what I hold in my hands has long been thought lost by scholars. Oft rumoured to be out there but never substantiated. Until now. I'm wearing cotton gloves so as not to spoil the pages which themselves are an amalgam of all manner of materials from what appears to be almost a, a woven bedsheet to fine paper trimmed with golden filigree, all held together in a softened calfskin folder. These papers, for want of a better word, represent the diaries of George Walpole, 3rd Earl of Orford. They give us a real insight into the life of the man and what made him tick. So here we are, settle in, for the first time in history, to extracts from the diaries of George Walpole. 17th of June. Too full to write much today. Suffice to say, the bestuffed peacock was uncommonly good. Must ask cook for recipe. 30th of June. Uh, I must add, he never took the trouble to write the years, so uh, this order is our best guess at chronological. 30th of June. Awoken at goodness knows what time by the new maid clattering around outside one's bedroom. It appears she, on her way to wash Aunt Elle's chamber pot, tripped over the brace of pheasants one left there after yesterday's hunt. She cursed the birds, asking aloud what the devil were they doing on the floor, at which point one swung open the door and scolded her. I wasn't very well going to cuddle them overnight, and what else did she expect one to do? Of course, she looked up, and it transpired she was uncommonly pretty. She stammered an apology and stuttered something about bringing the birds to cook presently. I called after her to make doubly sure they were washed. They had, after all, just bathed a while in Aunt Elle's effluvia. Closed the door and made a mental note to get rid of the rug in the hall. 1st of July. The Rockinghams visited for supper this evening. Pheasant stew. Rather tangy. Must be the saffron Cook seems newly enamoured of. Discovered Lord Rockingham to be a wagering man after he bet Great Uncle Horatio his oldest wig that he, Rockingham, could beat any one of his, Great Uncle Horatio's, relatives in a foot race around the grounds. Great Uncle Horatio duly elected me, though he knows one much prefers to travel with a horse between one's legs, and one duly lost. It seems Great Uncle Horatio will give even his oldest wig to see me bested. On the plus side, one learned the name of the distractingly beautiful new maid. It's Patty. 3rd of July. Have determined to devise a wager so unerringly brilliant that it is sure to win even Patty's heart. No ideas as yet. Off to Loddon to conduct an event. 4th of July. Have just returned from Loddon. The hair coursing ran a little longer than expected. It is presently nearing dawn. I write this by day's swelling light. I return richer by five turkeys, currently hiding out in an empty stable. They did not take at all well to being transported by horse and carriage, but by Jove we did it. Big birds, turkeys. Bigger than they looked when I agreed they could be a prize. Stubborn, too. Managed to palm somebody off with the hallway rug as overall third prize. Didn't even need to clean it. 12th of July. Rockingham brought over one of his geese for Cook to stuff and, well, cook. 
but as soon as I laid eyes upon the beautiful bird, I simply knew it would be impossible to eat the blessed thing. Such grace in that neck, such power in those wings. I couldn't begin to, oh bugger, the turkeys are still in the stable. They are all still alive and, well, thriving even. Tossed them a handful of corn and returned to bed. Do turkeys eat corn? 13th of July. Took the turkeys out for a walk with the stable boy. Faster than they look. Went past Patty lunching on her break, one assumes. Think we must have given her quite the fright, gobbling past like a couple of shepherds with an obscene herd. Feeling rather the buffoon, as was thinking of asking her to take a turn around the grounds, though Lord knows great-uncle Horatio would never approve. Now she must think I seldom go anywhere without a great host of turkeys. Perhaps she'd like that. I wonder what's faster, a turkey or a goose? She'll have to ask Rockingham when he next dines with us. Feel certain the turkey is the hardier bird. One can tell merely by looking, their bulk, their colouring, everything about the bird screams, or should that be gobbles, endurance. A plan formulates. She'll send for Rockingham to come for dinner, challenge him to a substantial bird-related wager, thus simultaneously wooing Patty with one's bravery must ensure she is within earshot, and taunting great-uncle Horatio with my wanton wagering of the old fortune. Rockingham shall never be able to resist, then I shall win the wager, win Patty, and defeat that old fart Horatio. One's genius knows no bounds. 17th of July. It is done. The trap has been set. The spring is loaded. The die has been cast. The tea leaves have been steeped. The wood has been whittled. Uh, one is speaking in metaphor, of course, for the excitement one feels needs the most poetical formation. The lips are pursed and ready to whistle. This very evening, over boiled grouse and dumpling, the terms of the wager were set, with Patty in full earshot. How her eyes sparkled as I brazenly cast down my terms, how her ears prickled at the brash boasts I fired off like shot. The terms are these. My five turkeys versus five of Rockingham's geese are to be raced from the family homestead down to London. However, this race is not for speed, no, no. This is the damnably clever aspect. The race is one of endurance. He who has the most birds left at the finishing line shall be the victor and shall earn of the other 5,000 pounds. Oh, how I lured Rockingham in like a prize trout. It was all too easy as I bragged throughout the meal of the qualities of my turkeys over any other type of befeathered beast. Of course, One's great-uncle harumphed and asked, Was I mad to keep thus speaking of turkeys? As the wager was secured, his great jowls near reached his navel, so far did his jaw drop. Now to sleep, for tomorrow the race begins. Unfortunately, um, we don't know the result of the race. There are later references to the result that must never be spoken of. And in a letter to Lord Rockingham, Walpole wrote, I have burned what record I have of that accursed race, and I urge you, as a man of conscience, to do the same. 
there are later references to turkeys as the cowards of the bird world, more guppy than bird and more coward than guppy. He further states, turkeys are no longer the thing, birds of prey are the thing. Whilst the result of the race may be guessed at, what we do know is the wager seems to have sufficiently charmed Patty. George himself puts it thus. She is the only good thing I have ever encountered, the only thing I have ever loved, and that she has been by my side through all this is nothing short of an undeserved miracle. Thank you for that, Anne. That was lovely. That did actually happen, by the way. That race. The <laughs> the turkeys versus the geese. Okay. <laughs> that is uh, mad. They actually bet money on that. Oh, wow. Well, I guess that's a nice little peek into the lives and habits of our social betters. Tim, why, why are you making air quotation marks into the microphone? Uh, um, oh, 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 yeah. Uh, the Aristos always seem to need odd ways of blowing off steam, probably to cope with just how ridiculously entangled and complex their family situations were. Or because of incest. Well, yeah. Um, so, for instance, in 1752, George made his will. Okay. A fairly normal thing to do. And then in 1756, his great-uncle Horatio seemingly convinced him to change his will in order to ensure the Walpole estate would remain in the hands of the men. As is right and proper. Indeed. We don't actually think that. No, Neither no. We're, we, we both pretty much identify as feminists. We, yes. we don't really think that. No. Um, and so later, in 1776, George made an amendment, essentially saying, For God's sake, sell everything first to ensure that my debts can be paid, and then hand whatever's left out as per the 1752 will. Ah. So, we don't know if that was a mistake or deliberate. Yeah, so, um, either that is a um, fairly progressive and altruistic thing for George to have done, or it is just another example of his cocking up (laughs) (laughs) essentially well well, let's give him the benefit of the doubt yeah George you're alright oh the complex lives of the upper classes of course it's the case now that a lot of today's aristocracy are completely impoverished but still living in these grand country manors which are falling down around them as they eat pot noodles and drink what's left of their wine cellars and it is a story about just such a lord that I would like to tell you now. Lord Archibald Cecil Abstruse Bandecute sat in the morning room with a newspaper open in front of him. Whether or not he actually read the paper would be up for debate. While he would certainly squint at passages, thumb forward to the sports, and occasionally comment aloud on events described in the politics section, he would not, for instance, noticed the fact that the paper was actually 25 years old, or that he had read it before, by this point almost 10,000 times. This lack of realisation was painstakingly maintained by Lord Archibald's loyal butler, Wymany. Each morning, when his lord handed him the paper, with the customary, Breakfast now, I think, Wymany. Burn the rag. 
he would carefully separate out the pages and place each under a press of several heavily bound books, and then dry them very slowly in the bread oven. This ensured that come the next morning when Lord Archibald reached for it, his fingers grasped crisp and unwrinkled paper. Seems to be a page missing here, Wymany. I shall inform the boy, and request he take more diligent care in his delivery henceforth. The boy was now in fact a grown man expecting his third child, and had long since left the print industry. The missing page was actually the victim of a tea spillage some thirteen years previous. Since then, Wymany had made a point of filling his lord's cup a deal less. Breakfast now, I think, Wymany. Burn the rag. Sir. Wymany took the paper and gave a steady tug on the bell rope. There was no one at the other end to hear the bell ring, the cooks having departed years ago, but Wymany rang it all the same for the benefit of Lord Archibald and because he was a stickler for proper practice. "'Shall I bring you breakfast here, or on the terrace, sir?' "'The terrace. Thank you, Wymany. Seems a pleasant enough day for it.' As the aging lord made his way slowly through the French windows and out onto the lawn, Wymany left the morning room and broke into a brisk jog down the corridor. He needed to make it across the building in good time to prepare the breakfast and return before his lordship missed him. The journey was made all the more perilous by the appalling state of repair the vast majority of the manor was in. Holes worn in the carpet lay waiting to trap a foot and send one flying. If one then had the misfortune to impact a wall, one was also likely to encounter the floor of the room behind it, and probably elements of the ceiling as well. Wymany made it to the kitchen in one piece and good time. He pulled open the heavy door to the pantry, the sight that greeted him was not encouraging. Bare shelves and an open, warm and empty meat locker. A small pile of fruit and veg sat looking sad at the bottom of a shelf. Wymany sighed, shouldn't have served up that last hen the month before. Might still have had some eggs in it. Your breakfast, sir, said Wymany as he placed the silver tray before Lord Archibald. The Lord's wispy eyebrows rove above the furrows on his brow, Cripes, Wymany, is that all? He asked of the half a pink grapefruit with a spoon in it. No, no, no sausage, no bacon. The doctor's instructions, sir. Fresh fruit in the morning. The doctor's last visit had been shortly before that of the paper boy, and his actual advice had been that Lord Archibald's nerves were of a very delicate composition, and that surprise, distress, and most of all shock should be avoided at all costs for the sake of his health. That is what had led to the current situation. The Lord's financial state had been less than prosperous to begin with, but over the course of the last two and a half decades, it had dwindled and eventually snuffed out altogether. Wymany had strategically let go of the staff in stages so as to eke the money out further. Now all that was left was himself and the old gardener, whose ample frame at this moment appeared over the hedge with a pair of secuteurs. Like Wymany, his family had served the abstru bandicootis for generations. It was from his small vegetable patch that the majority of the Lord's food was now picked. Well, d damn it all, Wymany, I really don't know how much longer I can take this stuff. Seems to me I get lumbered with more damned plant material than the blasted rabbits. The rabbits had indeed, by this point, been blasted. Then skinned, stewed, and served. The warrens on the estate had lain barren for quite some time, 
I need some meat. Why many meat? Sausages, chops, stews, steaks. The Lord's face was turning bright red and then purple as he became more animated in his rant. Whatever memory functions his mind had let go of, his stomach seemed to have picked up. He was in danger of becoming quite upset. From the corner of his eye, Wymany saw the old, fat gardener walking along the hedgerow with his secuteurs. Clip, clip, clip. Clip, clip, clip. Wymany placed the silver top back over the breakfast plate. My apologies, sir. I shall take this away and have Cook prepare something more... substantial. He cast an exaggerated eye skyward. There appears to be rain clouds gathering. May I suggest, sir, that you retire to the library with a book, and I shall bring you your meal there. Yeah, yes, very well, I'll do just that. Might have a bit of a kip in me old chair. Wake me when you've found some real food. Of course, sir. Clip, clip, clip. His lordship retreated back through the French windows. Why many turned towards the hedge? Fowler, he called to the gardener. Could I possibly see those secuteurs a moment? Thank you very much, Tim. That was delicious. I could taste the story's heritage. Only the very best here, mate. I'd like to round this podcast off by letting everyone know that a descendant, brackets, we assume, yes. <laughs> of George is currently the leading man in a film that is playing. Uh, the Goob by Norwich resident Guy Myhill stars Liam Walpole as The Goob. Uh, it's a cracking film. I, I saw it only last week, and I would highly recommend that you go and see it. Okay, well, I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. Great. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Tim. You're welcome, man. It's been an absolute pleasure. And you, uh, dear listener, can come back next time where Shay will be back, and she and Tim shall cross another plaque off the list. No, 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 Anne, that's not okay. Okay, look, I, I do the puns on this podcast. You cannot just come in here and start punning everywhere. Do you know, do you have any idea how hard I work on these puns? Seriously, do you? No. Do you I mean, like, what, you're just, just going to come in and watch, oh, I'm just going to throw one off the cuff. Oh, look, I'm at cool. I'm just going to improv here. Oh, it's so, I'm so good at just improvising. Just, it's not okay, Ant. This is my life. This is my work. Puns are everything to me. How could you do?